much. It is so great to be here. Um, and uh, as Pastor Bruce said, yeah, it was 19 years ago uh, that we left. So 24 years ago, um, many of you here took a risk on a young guy who was uh, just starting seminary, or I was about a year into seminary, and uh, it's forever changed my life. I talk about this church all the time and all the ways that so many of you invested uh, in our family. We do have, we had four kids when we were here. I think, uh, I think we showed up with two, had two more, and then after we left, we had two more as well. So we have six kids. They're all in Louisville, and uh, that's really their home now. Uh, and we uh, have, they're all nearby us, and we spend a lot of time together and really uh, enjoy each other as well. But we often think back to, to Mount Morris in these years, uh, again, with so much gratitude. Uh, I'm very aware of that, and so I'm just very thankful, and I'm so glad to see so many of you here. Uh, this, this weekend, uh, I'm going to be kind of talking about a crazy-sounding idea. I want to kind of expand your vision uh, for thinking about Christianity with a, with a word that you don't use very much and may sound highfalutin or something, but I'm going to explain that's not what it is, and that's the word philosophy. Uh, and what I'm going to be talking about today and then tomorrow morning a couple times is, is, again, kind of another angle at thinking about the beauty and richness of Holy Scripture and, and what the Christian faith is uh, and to kind of expand some of these ideas. So there's a handout. Um, that's for tonight, but let me just say, I love questions. I love to dialogue. Um, I'll say a bunch of stuff at any point. If you want a clarification, you raise your hand, shout out, and I'd be happy to dialogue. Or at the end, I'd be happy to take some questions as well tonight. I don't have a super ton of material uh, tonight. I don't have too much. Um, so feel free to write down questions and be thinking about anything you might want to ask. So um, we've got the PowerPoint here as well, and you can follow along there on the first point. So when you think about, maybe we have PowerPoint? Yes, next slide, if you could. Um, so when you think about, um, I don't know if you know any of these people, you probably know Nick Offerman, probably from, from uh, uh, Parks and Rec. How many of you know Nick Offerman, that name? Okay. He, he actually wrote a book uh, a couple years ago called Paddle Your Own Canoe, which I read, which is very interesting. Nick Offerman is this man's man, and it's basically, uh, what's the subtitle there? Um, I can't remember now. Man's Fundamentals to, I don't know what it says. I can't read it there, but it's basically a how to live life, and it includes a lot of barbecue and a lot of relationships with his wife and, and things like that. It's a very, very kind of man's man, how to live life. So he would be a modern guru. Maybe some of you have heard of Jordan Peterson, that means somebody, okay. Yeah, so very much a modern guru. This other guy, these other two books you probably haven't heard of, but he's one of my very favorite reads. I've read five or six of his books in the last few years, a guy named Alain de Baton. And so, but he's, he's a modern philosopher as well. But what all these people have in common is that they are gurus. They are people, along with Oprah and a million other people, who are offering to us how to live well. Now, for some, some Christians, we read these books as well. I think it's no problem at all. Um, for others, maybe you don't read these people. But, but I want to put these people into the context of what they are in culture. They really are gurus, or what would have been said in the ancient world, they are philosophers. They're really people who are offering a philosophy of life so that you can experience the good life or long, long, the flourishing we all long for. And that's something we all long to be happy. We all long for direction on how to live a good life. And what you may not um, be aware of is that if you go to the next slide as well, these old-looking dudes here, these great Greek and Roman philosophers, people like Socrates and Aristotle and uh, Seneca and others, this is who these people were in the ancient world. I know you've probably heard those fancy names of Socrates and Aristotle, and you probably think, boring, I have no idea what they're talking about, it's super confusing. But what I want to help you understand is that these people in the ancient world were the versions of our Oprah and Jordan Peterson and others. And in fact, that's what they cared the most about. They really were popular teachers who did have a lot of fancy thoughts, 
but they didn't really care as much about their fancy thoughts as they did coming down to how to teach people to really live well so that you can build a good society and build a good life in marriage and in government and in work and friendship and all these kind of things, okay? So the first thing I just want to kind of insert into your mind is that we all long for people to give us wisdom. We all long for gurus. In the ancient world, this is who the philosophers were. In the modern world, it's all kinds of people, celebrities and other people we look to. And what ties them all together is that they are all asking the great human questions. If you go to the next slide. So the, there's really four really big questions that humans have always asked themselves. And I, I give you the fancy words here as well, just so you know what they are. But what really matters is not the, the fancy words after it, but it's this. What is the nature of reality? So what, what is the, how does the, how do the world come into being and and how does it run and how is it connected? And this in the ancient world is called metaphysics, but it just means this, this big idea of how, what's the world really like and how does it really operate? And if you think about the ancient philosophers, they had really specific views, like about atomic structure or earth, wind, and fire, or, you know, whatever it is. They had certain views of how the what the nature of reality was. If you were to press into Nick Offerman, or if you were to press into Oprah, you would probably get some kind of, hodgepodge, inconsistent view of what the nature of reality is, but they'd have some kind of view of what it is. So that's the first big human question. The second big human question that people have always asked themselves is, okay, so how do you really know anything? Like, how, how do you know and how do you know rightly? And I, I don't presume uh, most of you would probably know this or remember it, but there's some really famous things in the ancient philosophers, like Plato's cave, where he has this metaphor of like, this illustration of how do you really know things? And this is like a big question that people have always asked at some point. Maybe you've never asked yourself that question, but it is one that humans have asked themselves a lot. This one maybe is more familiar. What is the good and how do you pursue it? There's, we all recognize that some things are good, some things are bad, some things are better than others, um, some things are worth pursuing or not. This, this is another big human question. What is the good? And we can call this ethics. And then finally, how do we structure our society? What's the best way? What's the relationship of, of government to humans? And what's the relationship of husbands to wives and children to parents and friendships and, and organizations you make? This, this can we can put in the category of what's called politics, which I know that English word is pretty negative now, but this is a kind of a big category of how do you structure relationships in society, okay? Now, here's the point. These big human questions were exactly what the ancient philosophers cared the most about. And here's the big idea. This is the world that the Bible comes into. Both the Old Testament and especially the New Testament. Because these are really universal human questions that all people have asked themselves and the thought leaders of any culture have tried to give answers to them. In fact, the ancient philosophers were a lot more thoughtful about this than today's philosophers and today's gurus, but all, all people have asked these, these questions. And my point is, and this is the sort of um, the unexpected thing that I'm hoping to help expand your mind with, is that this is actually a super helpful way it's not the only way, but it's a super helpful way to think about what's going on in the Bible. That actually the Bible is this ancient document that, that when you go to it and understand it in its ancient context, this is exactly what it's seeking to answer. In other words, that even though you and I think of primarily the Bible rightly as a revealed, inerrant, inspired religious document, which it is, what I want to help you understand is that in the ancient context, how it would have primarily been perceived is, yes, that, but as answering these great human questions that everybody else was asking as well. Let me think with you through this idea. So let's take that first question. What's the nature of reality? Well, what does the Bible have to say about that? And if you have a Bible or you can pull it up on your phone or whatever, where you only have to turn to the first pages, right? And to realize that this is actually very much how the Bible is presenting itself as an ancient philosophy at answering these big questions. 
What does the Bible say about the nature of reality? Well, right in the beginning, in these first few chapters of Genesis, what we get is all kinds of statements about how whatever else you might think about how the world was made, there's actually a singular God. It wasn't just a random collection of, of material atoms or things like that. There's actually a singular personal God who is actively involved in creating all that exists. And then notice especially that all that exists is good. The, the repeated refrain over and over, and it ends with the seventh time it said it was very good, that God, that there's a personal God who actually created the world and created it good. And that where did humanity come from? Humanity came from God breathing, making male and female in his image, breathing his own breath into them, and then giving them a role in this creation that he's made. Now, I know that what I just said there is a super familiar story to us, but what I'm trying to help you understand is that the claims that are being made there are, are these metaphysical claims. In other words, it's not, just, it's not just a religious story that we're called to believe in. It's actually speaking into the ancient world and saying, this is the true story of how, what the nature of reality is. And then it also adds this really important element of what's wrong with the world is not because of some flaw in creation, but because of humanity's rebellion against the, the good God and the distorting of all that God has made in the world gets distorted by his uh, human creation, right? And so the point is, and you could, we could go on and look at other places as well, that this is... This claim right from the beginning of the Bible and all throughout is, is presenting the Bible. The Bible's presenting itself in the ancient world as saying, I'm telling you what the real nature of reality is. And then let's go to the second question. How do we know things and how do we know them truly? Well, staying right here in Genesis, have you ever noticed how much the idea of knowledge is really central to the Bible's whole message? In fact, you could, you could trace this all throughout, but think about what happens right there in creation, that there is a tree placed in the middle of the garden. You can see it in Genesis 3 and 2 and into 3, and that this is the tree that is about the, that grants the knowledge of good and evil. And the whole story of the fall concerns humans gaining a kind of knowledge that God had not planned for them to gain in that way and in that time, and by doing so, breaking and creating this break in this relationship between God and humanity. And that knowledge that they gained that creates an unknowing of God is really at the very beginning of the Bible. And then if you just trace, you know, trace through, if you just think of all the places in the Bible where knowledge of God is basically what the Bible's about. And so the question, the epistemology question, the question of how do you know, and what does it mean to really know? The Bible is thinking a lot about that question, and the answer is that you can only know truly when you have a relationship with God, and that that's, that's very much speaking into this great human question of how do you know, and how do you know things. Turn, turn ahead to the book of Romans, and let me help you think about how Romans makes sense if you think about it in terms of a kind of knowledge of God. The very first chapter of Romans really presents, like, what is humanity's problem? Well, humanity's problem is that we, we had some knowledge of God that was still in us as, as being his creatures, but that we, by a wrong worship, if you look at, at uh, starting in verse, uh, many places in chapter 1, but Romans 1 and 18, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. What is, could be known about God is plain, because God has shown into him, his invisible attributes, etc., right? Verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him, and therefore, what's the result of this? They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immoral God, this is verse 23 of chapter 1, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Do you see how much discussion there is of knowledge? So there's a knowledge of God, but because of a denial of this knowledge and really a wrong worship, the result is a darkening of the mind, what we call the noetic effects of sin, that, that sin doesn't just make our bodies die and make us do immoral things. Sin actually clouds our ability to know and to know truly and fully. My point is this is, again, the Bible's answer to this great human question that humans have always asked, including the ancient philosophers, how do you know and how do you know truly? And then if you, if you flip ahead to chapter 12, which is really where the solution comes. You have all this beautiful truths that are spoken all throughout Romans chapters 1 all the way through 11. And then if you look at chapter 12, this is really where the narrative, or the arc of the argument of Romans comes to its head. He says in Romans 12, after all that he said about Jesus and the sacrificial death he gave us, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your, and your translation probably says something like reasonable or spiritual worship. What this kind of, translations take it differently because it's kind of a confusing phrase, but what this is saying is it's, it's the Greek word there is logikos, which you can hear the word logos in there. The idea is that you, um, through the renewal that has happened and now that we worship correctly by offering ourselves to God as opposed to what we did back in Romans 1, therefore we come to understand God truly again. Look at what verse 2 says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And there's more that could be said there as well, but my point is that in this very famous book of Romans, which we often think of as sort of having this super clear message of the gospel, which it does. I want to suggest to you that really, at the end of the day, what that, that whole message of the gospel is framed in terms of knowledge. It's framed in terms of we had a knowledge, we lost it, it was darkened, and then the solution to it after all of Jesus coming into the world is that we come to actually be able to see God and see the world correctly again. That's what the work of redemption does. It's a restoration of a proper knowing of God. Okay? And to put that in its context again, this is what um, the, the great question of epistemology, sorry, lost my notes here, um, is all about. It's the question of how do you know things and how do you know them rightly? The third point is what is the good and how do we pursue it? Let me see if I can get my... This is my paranoia of, of having my notes on an iPad is that it would die, and it seems like it has. Awesome. Okay. That's all right. Um, so what, what is the good, and how do we pursue it? Well, the idea um, here is, does the Bible have anything to say about that? Obviously, it does. And the whole message of the Bible is very much focused on God revealing himself in what we what is the Old Testament calls Torah, which are translation in English is usually law, but that's, that's in some ways not a helpful translation because God's relationship to us is not about him just giving commands. It's actually inviting us to understand what is the good and how to pursue it. In other words, I'd like to suggest to you that the way to think about all of God's commands in scripture are not that God's up there giving us these laws in this kind of impersonal way, but he's showing how he is and inviting us to live in a certain way that is the good life. I mean, this is, this is how it's just to you that people in the ancient world would have understood what the Bible's teaching is that it's an invitation to the good life. It's helping us see what is the good and how do you pursue it, which is the great question of ethics. And the reason why God commands anything he does is because only when we live in, according, in accordance with who God is will we find true life. You see, to be made in God's image means that we will only find our, the flourishing we long for if we're living in accord with the nature of reality. And the nature of reality is, am I, uh, I'm probably not even in the camera, sorry about that. The, the, oh, are you going to plug in? Oh, that's awesome. 
I don't know. I thought it was fully powered. I'm not sure what's. Is that the right cord, though? I don't think it's the right one. Sorry, this is the iPad Pro. It's the USB-C. That's okay, but good thought though. Oh, okay. That was awesome. That's okay. No, I can I can make it. Um, so the 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 reason God commands what He does is because it it accords with who He is, and therefore we will only find life when we're living according to who He is. And that is the great question of again, what is the good, and how do we pursue it? And then the final one is how do you structure relationships? Well, you start thinking about how much of the Bible concerns relationships between humans. And after all, you think about the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. We recognize that the first part of the Ten Commandments are about relationship with God. That's the proper relationship. The second part are about relationships with each other. And that really traces through, including in what Jesus says is the greatest commandment, to love God, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. This is at the heart of the Bible, is how do you structure relationships so that you might flourish? In the Old Testament, you have God give very specific specifications about how to structure society. And one of the books that really helped me in recent years along these lines is by an Israeli scholar named Yoram Hazoni, who argues very convincingly that the whole Jewish scriptures are an ancient philosophy. And a lot of it has to do with how details of instructions God gives for how people need to live in proper relationships, just like Plato's Republic and Aristotle's politics. So too, the Old Testament is giving us a vision of how to live together. And when you come to the New Testament, turn, turn back in your New Testament to Matthew chapter 18. There's lots of places we could go in Matthew, but I think one of the clearest places to land is Matthew 18, where, and I'll, and I'll talk about this a little bit more tomorrow too, but you have all these teachings from Jesus throughout Matthew, and in chapter 18, you have this teaching about how to live together in the church. And if you look at Matthew 18, this is some of the strongest language, some of the strongest vision of Jesus' teachings, and it all concerns living in relationships of mercy and forgiveness towards each other. It's like this major portion of Jesus' teaching. In fact, when you look at all of Matthew, his uh, big emphasis in Matthew is that we need to have relationships of mercy towards each other. If you look at Matthew 18, he talks about caring for the little ones and receiving a child in a way that you know, cares for them, the, the weak ones that are not leading people in temptation and, and temptation to sin in 18.7 and following, this parable of the lost sheep, going and helping those who are in need, and then starting in 18.15, all this discussion about when people sin against each other in the church, which happens all the time, with some of the very strongest language from Jesus that we need to actually live in relationships of forgiveness. And if not, then the person who's unwilling to live in a relationship with forgiveness of each other is under the church's discipline. Like when, when we go to Matthew 18, starting in 15 and following, a lot of times we think of this text as talking primarily about, you know, what to do in immoral situations and how the church should handle it. And that is a fair reading of this. But what this text is primarily about is how Christians need to learn to live in relationships of forgiveness towards each other. And then Jesus gives his longest parable in all of Matthew in 18, 21 and following. And it is a it is a very challenging parable all the way down to verse 35, the parable of the unforgiving servant. You may remember this parable where one person has been uh, forgiven a great amount by the king, and then he turns around and is unwilling to forgive someone who owes him a much smaller amount and the judgment that comes upon him for that. This is a very powerful parable from Jesus that, again, is all about how we need to live in relationships with each other in a certain kind of way, okay? So my big point here, then again, is that when you read the Bible with this new set of lenses, like that it's actually speaking brilliantly and powerfully to these great questions that we've always asked. What's the nature of reality? How do you know things? What's the nature of the good? And how do you pursue it? And how do you structure relationships? And that brings us to the point then of Jesus as the greatest philosopher.
Um, one of the things that I, the thought experiment I like to, to do, and I talk about this in the beginning of the, of the book I have back there, Jesus the Great Philosopher, is to think of a church, maybe think of a really big church that has banners that if when you walk in, you can see these beautiful hand-sewn banners that each have um, names of who God is for us. So Jehovah Jireh, maybe, and Friend of Sinners, and King, and Lord, and Savior. There's a, there's a couple of them that I think we'd be surprised that we probably would never put on a banner. Uh, one would be Exorcist, even though that's one of the main ways that Jesus is presented in the Gospels. You don't think about that. But also one that I think any of us would be shocked at if we walked into a church and saw, if it said, you know, Lord, Savior, Friend, etc., and then it said, philosopher. <laughs> I think most of us would be totally shocked and think, what kind of weird church have I stepped into that they're calling Jesus a philosopher? But if you were to transport back, let's say to the third century, or really almost any century before the 17th century, transport back and visit a church like a famous church that we discovered at the beginning of the 20th century in a city in modern-day Syria called Dora Europas, where the, the, the church members there had, and I think we've got a picture here of some of their pictures, um, the, the paintings on the wall, actually the one in the upper left there is in a synagogue that's in the city as well. And if you look at how Moses is depicted there, I don't know if you, it's kind of hard to see, you can see that he is clearly being depicted as a philosopher. He's got the philosopher's robes on, he's got the haircut, the way he's standing, right? And they're harder to see here, but these these pictures from this ancient church in Dura Europas, they all depict Jesus and the activities he's doing, healing people, etc., as a philosopher. And they're hard to see, but these would have been very obvious images. It'd just be like if, if somebody walked in here and had a huge 10-gallon hat and gold or silver spurs and a big silver gun, you wouldn't have to wonder this person's a cowboy of a certain sort, right? So too, any time someone is depicted like this in the ancient world, it's very clear to anyone seeing them that they're being depicted as a philosopher. And so even though to us it sounds really weird to talk about Jesus in this way, this is exactly how he was depicted all for centuries and centuries. We've lost this image of him for a number of reasons, but this is what I'm trying to kind of help you rediscover. Not only is the Bible present itself as a philosophy, so too the New Testament very much presents Jesus as the greatest philosopher of all time, which again sounds weird to us because we think philosophers are like meaningless people off in a university saying meaningless things. But in the ancient world, a philosopher again was the person who really helped you figure out what true life is. What's the nature of reality? How do you live well? And how do you find true human flourishing individually and together? And that's very much how Jesus is presented. If you think about the Gospels, the, the Gospels that make up the, you know, the, the heart of the New Testament, really the, the opening pages of the New Testament, they are presenting Jesus constantly as a wise teacher who is constantly inviting people into life. As Jesus says in John 10, 10, for example, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly, right? And when Jesus talks about eternal life, I know you and I think of that primarily as like he's talking about heavenly existence or something, but what, he, what he's doing when he's offering life, he's doing what any other philosopher would have done in the ancient world is saying, here's true life. I'm gonna tell you where you can really find meaningful life that is rooted in eternity and will last forever. And the Gospels themselves are, are really biographies of the greatest teacher who ever lived. This is how they present themselves. They are biographies saying, here's a person who is both teaching things that will promise us life, and he's modeling for us how to really live a life that will result in flourishing. This is what the Gospels uh, do very much. They are presenting themselves, uh, they're presenting Jesus as the greatest philosopher that ever lived. And tomorrow morning, we're going to look more in more detail at the Sermon on the Mount, which is 
one of Jesus' greatest teachings of all time, and see that the way that he presents his own teaching is very much in these philosophical terms or these terms of how to find true life, true happiness, true flourishing, and we'll come back uh, to that tomorrow morning. Okay, so the final thing then to say, and I, I hope this is stimulating some questions for you as well, is, okay, so this is kind of a crazy idea, Pennington, to kind of rethink of the Bible as a, as a book of ancient philosophy and Jesus as a philosopher. And again, I'm going to unpack this tomorrow more. But why does this matter? Well, the reason this matters is not just so I could write a book or something. The reason this matters is because I think something has happened in our Christian faith that we have lost as a result of losing this way of thinking about the Bible and Jesus. So I give you four losses there. First, um, I think one thing that's happened to us is a lot of times our Christian faith is often disconnected from other aspects of our human lives. Christianity has become merely a religion than a philosophy of life. Christianity is a religion. It's a revealed truth from God. We believe Holy Scripture is God's word spoken to us. But if you're anything like me, it's hard to sometimes know how that fits in in reality into the rest of our lives. A lot of times I think we think of our lives like a chest of drawers where religion, the religious part of the Christian part of the church part, it's a, maybe it's a big drawer and it's at the top and we recognize it's really important. But then all these other areas of our lives, work and relationships and parenting, we might say the Bible might have some principles for us, but they're really kind of separate parts of our lives. And it's not really clear to us how it all integrates together. I think part of the reason that is, is because we've stopped um, thinking about the Bible as providing a whole philosophy of life and think of it as just kind of for the religious part of our lives rather than for all the aspects of our integrated lives. Second, as we do this, we tend to look to alternative gurus to give us the wisdom needed to live flourishing lives to find the good life for. Again, we love the Bible. We want to learn from the Bible. But I don't think most of us would probably say that the Bible is telling us about true human flourishing or truly the good life. But I'm suggesting to you this is exactly what it's doing. It's casting a vision for how to live our entire lives in ways that will promise the, the life that we long for. Third, we've stopped asking a, a set of big questions that the Holy Scripture is seeking to answer. Again, questions about how the world really works and how to live in it. It's like uh, that the, the Bible is there wanting to say all these things, but we've forgotten to ask the right questions about it. I don't know if any of you guys have ever read uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the, those, all those books. I loved those when I was in years past. And one of the funny things that happens in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, these kind of spoof science fiction stories, is that they build, it turns out the Earth is actually a supercomputer designed to give the answer to the meaning of life. And after millions of years, it turns out the answer is 42, right? But then they realize that no one remembers what the original question was, right? So you got the answer, but not the question. That's how I often think about how we sort of think about the Bible is that we, it has all these things it's saying, and we know it's rich, but we're not asking the right questions of it a lot of times. We're only asking the religious kind of spiritual questions, and we're forgetting to ask sort of these deeper, profound, how to live life well questions. And then fourth, I think we've also done this on the back page, we've limited our witness to the world. You probably know that the percentage of people who grew up in church and leave the church at college age is extremely high right now. It's extremely high, right? And we might lament and think about all kinds of reason that is, and there are probably multiple reasons why that's the case. I think it has a lot to do with the fact the way we think about and present our Christian faith in this kind of very narrow way. This is the religious part of our lives. Here's the things you have to do and don't do and watch out for all the bad things in the world, as opposed to presenting the Bible in the way it presents itself as the truest and richest and fullest philosophy to how to actually live well and find life itself. One of the really tragic things about Nick Offerman, when you read his, read his, you know, kind of fun little 
book is that he is an, really was striking to me, he's an Illinois boy who went to U of I. He was, I think he's from some farming community, I can't remember where it was, in central Illinois. It's a real, real similar. He went to University of Illinois and was involved in a Christian organization there, I don't know which one, was dating a Christian girl, but then as he got more involved in things, he, you know, he even experienced some kind of conversion experience he describes in there, but as he got involved in the theater scene, you know, he goes on to be a famous actor and other things, he just found Christianity, at least the way he had been presented it, as far too small. And he, he realized there were so many more interesting things out there in the world that he just walked away from the faith. And what's really kind of sad about the book is that a couple of the chapters are like extremely anti-Christian. It's not, he's not even just neutral about it. He's certainly reacting against his former self. And what really struck me when I read that book was that, that here's somebody for whom the, the version of Christianity he was presented was, was simply too small. It wasn't offering him a full philosophy of life. He was just being told, here's the religious truths and here's the morals you're not supposed to do. And I really think that's a big part of the reason why many people leave the faith because we've, we've stopped reading the Bible in this more holistic and, and full-hearted way. What would happen if we sort of regain some of this? A couple things there I give you. I think we, it'll help us read the Bible in a deeper way, recognize as a very thoughtful and sophisticated whole life vision. And I think a renewed joy and hope and faith as we look to Jesus as our Savior, Lord, and add this element to him that he's, he's, he is Lord and Savior, but he's also a philosopher. He's the greatest guru in that. I almost named the book that just for about one second. I thought about that. I thought I'd probably get fired if I wrote a book called Jesus the Guru. That's probably a little much. And so I didn't go with that, even though Jesus the philosopher sounds kind of weird too, I recognize. But, but this is the vision. So this is all just kind of to... to crack open your minds a little bit to see the Bible in a little different way and not, not in ways that are the opposite of what you've done, but to enhance and add to your understanding that the Bible is doing so much more even than what you've thought. And so what we're going to do tomorrow morning uh, at the nine o'clock hour, I hope you can be here. I'm going to lean in with a lot more detail into one of the biggest philosophical discussions of all time and this is going to surprise you what it is, it's what are our emotions and how do you, what do you do with our emotions? And I know that doesn't sound like a philosophical question, but that was, I'll show you, one of the largest discussions among Plato and Aristotle and Seneca and all the ancient philosophers, what are emotions and how do you handle them? And that's something that affects all of us as well. So that's what we're going to talk about at 9 o'clock tomorrow. And then I'm going to offer and show you that the Bible's philosophy has, is a very sophisticated view. The Bible has a lot to say about emotions and how to live with them well and how to educate them. And that's a big, that's a great contribution of the Bible. And then in the 1030 hour, whatever the other hour is, then we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount and again see what Jesus has to say about what it means to truly be happy. And, and what it means to find the, the kind of the flourishing life that you and I long for. And the answer he's going to give to that is very shocking, actually. It's an unexpected one, but it is, again, this, this great vision of embracing the Bible and embracing Jesus in this uh, wholehearted way, not only, again, as our Lord and Savior, but also our true philosopher as well. Okay, so let's take some questions. Yeah, Chester. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I didn't remember that. Go ahead. Yeah, thanks. I didn't remember that I talked about the flourishing stuff before, but I'm glad I did. Uh, yeah, so uh, flourishing is kind of a, is a word maybe that we don't use a lot, but I hope we can more. Um, and flourishing really just means, and we could translate it shalom as well in the Old Testament, we're familiar with that word, or um, the good life, although that maybe sounds too negative and materialistic to us or something. 
But the idea of flourishing, maybe shalom is the best word. It's, it's the, the life that God himself, that we long for and that God himself is saying, I'm showing you the way, the truth, and the life, the way to find life itself. That I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. So, so this, this is really at the core of what I'm saying is that the Bible really cares about that and is casting a vision for us which is what it means, which is what any philosophy does. That's what Nick Offerman's offering. What's what Oprah's offering. It's what CrossFit is offering, right? It's what keto diet is offering. Everybody is saying, this is the way you will find the life that you long for and that, or that we could call flourishing as well. But maybe I didn't answer your question. You want to follow up on that or? Yeah, so that, that's really at the core of this is sort of recognizing that as a central sort of vision of who God is and, and what he gives us. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely great. So the question is, yeah, so the other, so every ancient philosophy has a metaphysic. It has a, a depiction of how the world came into being, right? And you're absolutely right. They all, to explain how the world is, they all have some kind of version of things are in conflict with each other. So we can think in the Eastern philosophies, it's yin and yang. You know, there's these dark, these dark and uh, light forces that are in conflict with each other. Uh, in a lot of the Greek philosophical ones, it has to do with um, uh, so an, an early atomic view was that everything is always uh, in motion and and reaches moments where things settle and then go into motion or, or not. And so this becomes uh, a way of understanding the world that results in stoicism, which says that you should just learn to not care about anything because everything is just in a constant flux. Like things just flare up and then they go back down. So you have to learn to just kind of say nothing really matters. It's not really going anywhere. So the key to be happy is to just separate yourself from the world in every way, which is what Buddhism does as well. So all of those are rooted, every philosophy is rooted in some understanding of the nature of the world. And the Bible is unique in the way it says that there's a, per, a singular personal God who created all things good. And so how do you explain the, the bad stuff? That is the, the bad stuff, the conflict we feel is a result of human sin entering into what was a otherwise perfect world and that that is going to be eradicated and removed so the the big story of the bible is this remarkable metaphysic it's this remarkable vision that is inviting us to see the world in that way and it has implications then for how we live is how it goes so that's yeah, a good observation yep good is there another comment or question of any sort yeah please Yeah, a little earlier, so they're in the um, fourth and third, so the, the 300s and 200s BC, but by the time you get to um, Jesus, you already have a lot of Jewish people before this are reading these philosophers and, for example, depicting Moses as a philosopher. In fact, one of the things they often talked about was that Moses was was a philosopher. He was the true great philosopher that was, they, that was earlier than them. So a lot of times the Jewish people argued for the superiority of their understanding of the world by the fact that Moses was several hundred years before these great philosophers of the Roman era, of the Greek and Roman era. Yeah. So there's not as much interaction between the Far East and the Mediterranean area, um, but a, a lot of it is very early. Yeah, a lot of it is very early. Um, much, I mean, much earlier in Chinese philosophy, etc. In the 300s into the 200s BC, um, the 300s BC with Alexander the Great, who was this great 
Greek uh, emperor who takes Greek culture all the way down into India and basically creates this very Greekified area that the New Testament finds itself in a few hundred years later. That really spread a lot of, of philosophical ideas all throughout, including some interaction with Buddhism then. It's very interesting that the, the Buddhas, the depictions of the Buddhas after Alexander the Great are all wearing Greek togas, right? So like when you think of a Buddha and the clothing, that was the influence of Greek philosophers on, on Buddhism actually. So there's this very interesting interaction happening. And so by the time Jesus comes into the world, it is a very philosophical world. Like people are talking about these kind of things all the time. And you can see in Paul's letters, he's often saying things about ancient philosophers, like Acts 17, where he's interacting with the philosophers in Athens, right? But many other, other texts as well in Paul. So it's a very, this is kind of the big point, it's a very philosophically charged world, and the Bible comes into it and says, here's the true philosophy of the world, and we're gonna answer all the same questions you guys are asking with the true answer that's revealed from God and then ultimately in Jesus. So that, that's, that's really what I'm trying to help you see, that this is a kind of a, an expanded way to understand how the Bible is actually presenting itself that I think has some very positive. Uh, there, I mean, there is a lot. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. Maybe you're thinking of something, a particular thing, but, I mean, there, we have a ton of history and a ton of writing in the... I never learned anything in school until about 1066. Right, <laughs> right. From there, from Christ, so then, no, yeah, no, there's a ton, and... All, like all the Christian creeds come from those centuries. So we have tons of writings actually from Christians and non-Christians all the way straight up through, uh, all through that time period. So there's a lot and it's a lot to read, but uh, there's a lot there. Yeah, Bruce. Yeah, yeah, thanks, yeah. Yeah. So the Gospel of John is one of the most philosophical of the books of the New Testament, for sure. And you get a sense of that when you read the very first verses, which say, in the beginning, and our translation say, was the word, and that's a fine translation, but the, the Greek word, as you may know there, is logos, which is a very potent word, because it actually, it has, it's really evoking two different stories. Dysagius is the Logos, the Logos is thinking about Genesis 1 and the fact that God created the world through speaking, and it's saying that Jesus is the, the speech of God. He, he is the agent of creation, as the rest of the New Testament will say. He's not a created being himself. He is actually God's speech, or as Hebrews 1 will say it, the exact representation of, of God. So... So the shocking thing about John chapter 1 is that it says that, yeah, I mean, any Jewish person could read that in the beginning was the word, and they'd say, yeah, that's no problem. There's God's speech is from the beginning. Proverbs 8 talks this way. But then what does it go on to say, especially once you get down to verse 14, that this logos became flesh <laughs> and that we beheld his glory? That's the shocking part. And so John 1 is certainly evoking the Genesis story and, and returning our minds and making us say, turns out that there's a, there's a person that became flesh who is both divine but also separate from the Father. He was, he was with God, he was God and he was with God, so simultaneously. So that's, that's a big part of the Jewish part. But the other part that we don't think of 
is that logos was exactly the word that the Greek philosophers used to describe the, stru the structure of the entire universe. So the, the, the logos was the means by which the universe is held together and put together and structured. And so any Greek reader, which is New Testament certain in Greek, when they would hear that verse, a Jewish person would think, okay, yeah, this is, the, this is a shocking thing to say about Genesis to make us reread it. Any non-Jewish person would read it and say, you're saying that the, the nature of reality, that my, the, the metaphysic of reality is actually become a person? That's the claim. So it's like John 1 is this, I often call it an equal opportunity offender. It, like, it offends both Jews and Greeks, as Paul himself will say, because what the claims it makes about Jesus are speaking into both of those worlds, the, the creational account of Genesis and the philosophical account of the world and saying there's a person, there's a person who actually is those things. He's the true nature of reality. So that's, so that's a very philosophical claim to be made. Yeah. So, yeah, so again, oh, I think I lost my, oh, there's it there, okay. Uh, you guys getting the sound still? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is part of how Christians and Jews do make the claim for the superiority of the Bible over other philosophies is that it's way older even than any of the great philosophies that they know of. This is exactly part of their claim, that, that Moses was, you know, a thousand years or more earlier than Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, and that that becomes a big part of their argument. Is it still coming through? Okay. Um, yeah, so maybe I didn't, not sure what your question was, but yeah, that's a big part of it. Again, this this really interesting book by Yoram Hazoni was really mind-opening to me because he, his argument is, as an Israeli scholar, he says, you know, if you go take a philosophy class or a political class, history of politics or anything in a university, you'll read Plato and you'll read Aristotle and you'll read all these documents, but you, you can't read the Bible in those situations. But he says, but that is a completely unjustified prejudice because the Bible is, again, answering those exact same questions. It's casting a vision for how to structure society. It's talking about the nature of knowing. I mean, all, all the great questions. And so his, a big part of his argument is to kind of reintroduce, the and for him, the Hebrew scriptures into the university discourse as at least a player in the ancient philosophical discussions. Again, so if you took like a history of philosophy, if you took a history of politics class, for sure you would read Plato's Republic and Aristotle's Politics, and he's saying, and you should also read the, the Hebrew Bible because that's exactly what it's doing. It's talking about the exact same things. So for him, it's not like this, get the Bible back in the school scar argument, it's not that. He's talking just even at the academic level that we need to recognize that, that's, that the Bible's this very ancient witness to people thinking about these issues, is what he's saying which is, I think, very helpful argument. So, yeah, Joyce.
Right, right. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, so if you didn't hear the question, it was kind of a crazy question. Uh, no, no if, you didn't, if you didn't hear the question, she was just saying, what about, and especially, you know, generations of evangelicals that would rightly be concerned about talking about Jesus as only a teacher. So how does this fit in with that? Right, right, right. Yeah, so I should have said this before, one of the taglines I say a lot of times is Jesus is more than a philosopher for sure, according to the Bible, but he's not less than one, right? So, and I'd say the same thing about as a teacher or a sage, which that's what a philosopher is, is really a, a teacher. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it, you just have to open the gospels and see that the point of it, he's teaching a ton and, and it's, yes, he offers his life as a sacrificial death, and rises from the dead, it's absolutely essential. We can't lose that either, but we don't just, we, we, the, the gospels themselves that are about the life of Jesus and what he taught and how he modeled how to live, we, you don't just get rid of those once you sort of get the death and resurrection of Jesus. Like we don't just have the epistles. In fact, most of the New Testament consists of the gospels and they're at the beginning of the New Testament for a reason they are presenting Jesus in his fullest form. The epistles, the letters of Paul and others are reflections and applications on that to specific church problems, right? You just read through all the, the letters of Paul, they're saying, okay, here, here's what you guys are doing wrong here, let me tell you what to do right. But the bread and butter of Christianity from its beginning is being a follower of Jesus. And so to be a disciple is to be a learner that's what the word means. I should have said this before. I mean, yeah, gosh, I totally forgot to say this. Where do you think the idea of being a disciple comes from? That there are no disciples in the Old Testament, right? You, have, you do have some prophets and maybe some little thing, a school of the prophets, but the whole idea of Jesus going around and having followers who live with him and observe how he lives and memorize what he says, that, that comes from the Greek philosophical schools. That's exactly what they did. Aristotle, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and all the other philosophers gathered disciples. That's a, that's a Greek word that means a, a student or a learner. And then the New Testament presents Jesus in that exact same way as one who is gathering learners around him who do two things. They observe what he says, and then they observe how he lived, because you need to have both of those things to, to learn a way of inhabiting the world. And so we wouldn't, you know, we don't want to lose Jesus as King and Savior and Lord. That's absolutely true. But he's not only those things. He is a teacher who's inviting us to be disciples. My, my favorite text in all of Scripture is in Matthew 11, 25 to 30, where Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to babes. Yes, this is your goodwill. No one comes to the Father except for the Son. Uh, or no, sorry, no one knows the Father except for the Son and the one this, to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and take my yoke upon you, which is this image of learning to submit, and learn from me, that's the word disciple, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. That whole, especially verses 28 to 30, that's a vision of discipleship resulting in flourishing. If you, if you hear the language, learn from me, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, and you'll find rest or shalom or a Sabbath for your soul. That's the whole vision is it's through learning to be a follower that you'll find true life. And so, I, you know, the reaction against Jesus as a teacher is an overreaction against people making him only a good teacher, but he's 
he, he's still a teacher. <laughs> he's one teaching life. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, the so what Jester pointed out is that the Gospels have really not always fared well in the evangelical and especially the fundamentalist traditions because we haven't known what to do with them exactly because we have defined the Gospel, lowercase Gospel, in very narrow terms as only about my personal forgiveness of sins, which it is about that, but it's about so much more than that. And it's about God restoring his reign upon the earth um, from creation to new creation. And so, yeah, we have, we've tended to define the gospel so narrowly that we, we just like a simple, you know, don't drink or chew or run with girls who do, you know, and, and here's the right things to believe and don't do these bad things. Um, so we've really struggled with what to do with the Gospels, and I think that's made us not understand Jesus as a teacher, I think, a lot of times. So, okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can we thank Jonathan tonight? All right. Looking forward to him. This is just, this is just.